the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, yes, indeed. They checked my ID at the door. Oddly enough, let me in anyway. (laughs) Good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is Wednesday, 25th day of August, and uh, wonderful to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. We are, of course, here to keep you company, informed, challenged, entertained at all every Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Much to talk about tonight, and uh, I want to lead off with our dear friend Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee. He, of course, is also the host of Life Matters, heard every Saturday morning at 11 a.m., right? here on KFAX. A lot going on, not only here in California, of course, the March for Life in our state capitol earlier today. And meanwhile, meanwhile in Washington, D.C., they're up to their old shenanigans. We're going to get a report on both. And uh, again, Brian, as always, great to have you with us. Well, great to be with you, Craig. Yeah, it's a startling time. In- I think we're, we're dodging a bullet for the moment nationally. Uh, because, as you have heard, the House has passed an extraordinary measure of trillions of dollars, supposedly, for infrastructure. But you know what it is. Uh, you already know that they're going on a path to hell, and apparently they need funding for paving that path to hell. That's the infrastructure they're worried Most of that money that they want goes to radical organization. It's not it's social structure, not infrastructure. And that money is alarmingly more than ever called for. But it's not going to true infrastructure. It's going to ideology. And of course, part of that is the abortion industry. $3.5 trillion uh, set aside in this spending plan. Uh, and, of course, they're going to move to try to use the reconciliation process, that 51-vote uh, threshold. And uh, there's there's a lot of challenges related to this, not just the, the amount of money, where the money would be spent, but also yeah. this, Brian, against the backdrop of something that uh, was fought for long and hard many years ago that gave at least some sense of security to the notion that copious amounts of our tax dollars would be not going to support abortion on demand, and that, of course, has been the Hyde Amendment. But the Hyde Amendment of late has been in the crosshairs of Democrats. Uh, Tell us what's going on and how are they able to essentially subtly dismantle the totality of what the Hyde Amendment was first passed and accomplished to do. Right. So this measure that did pass yesterday does not include Hyde But in reality, and you hit the nail on the head, this now has to go back to the Senate. And in the Senate, there are at least two senators that said they're not going along with this. 
they're not going to sign off on it. That is our hope. By the way, those are not California's two senators. <laughs> California senators are irrevocably committed to paving that path to hell. But in the meantime, what's going to happen now is hopefully the Senate will hold. And if the Senate holds and doesn't give in, this is going to have to come back and we're going to see uh, the Hyde Amendment reintroduced. And then the House, when things come back, we're going to need both Republicans and Democrats to say, look, even if the Democrats say, look, I'm pro-choice, but I'm not going to have this money spent on abortion. Right now, the radicals who control the immediate agenda aren't going to say that. But there is a whole group of Democrats that are, in fact, getting a little nervous. And they're not sold out with, with AOC and company. They're not sold out to take the most radical position. And they, real, they will realize, especially when they hear from the district, that it's reasonable to say, we don't have to give this money to the abortion industry. And I can still be pro-choice. You don't have to give money to the Cadillac agencies, even though you're free to choose and buy a Cadillac. So government funding of the abortion industry is what's at stake in the Hyde Amendment. And then there's a companion, the Weldon which is a conscience clause that you can't force people to be involved in abortion. And uh, no federal funds can be involved in that. So both the Hyde and the Weldon language have been existing law now for many years. They're not in this current proposal. And the one that was entertained yesterday in the House, that's now going to the Senate, as you pointed out, uh, they need 51. And right now they don't have that in the Senate. So the next moves are the questionable moves. That's why you're legislator in Congress, you're a member of Congress, whether whether an existing Republican and existing pro-life representative, or even if they're a Democrat and pro-choice, they have in the past passed budgets that included the Hyde Amendment. So we need to let them know we need the Hyde Amendment and the Weldon Amendment retained. Because what really is at stake right now in the back of everyone's mind, you know, we're looking at this recall election in California. We're in the middle of it. But that's a dry run for what's on our... Right now, September is the election. Two months after that, all the races are open again for 2022. Every, every position, there's going to be new candidates. They're looking at their own re-election. And in California, the maps are, have been redrawn. They haven't been released, but they will be redrawn because there's going to be one fewer congressional district. So they have to rejigger the map. Every district line will be changed, so even sitting incumbents, they're not going to have the rules. So they have to realize that whatever they're doing right now, Mrs. Pelosi has made it precipitous. She has decided to go with the most radical elements in her party, but there still are some Democrats that are gulping and saying, I don't know if we want to do all this thing. And that's why the Hyde language is so important. And if it does get back to them, we want to make sure in the House that your member of Congress votes to uphold the Hyde Amendment. And 
even if you may feel discouraged, I mean, you may be in Jackie Spears' district there on the peninsula, and she's not with us, but she needs to know she's endangering all of the more reasonable Democrats that we're watching, that they're going to be at risk if they try pushing this through, and there's no reasonable language regarding, regarding funding of abortion. And the hide has always been considered very reasonable. So, Brian, do you think that there really is some uh, uh, potential significant um, threat to many of these deeply long-term ensconced politicians as a result of the backside of the uh, the 2020 uh, census and the resulting redistricting? I mean, is there, I, I, I guess it's a loaded question. I'm asking for you to give us some hope here. <laughs> but do, yeah, you, well, do you get, so. You, you, yeah. you, you, so you get the feeling that th- this could potentially upset the apple cart, meaning that some deeply ensconced politicians that we've heretofore just kind of written off as, you know, they're, they're going to be there until they, they, they decide to quit may potentially now be vulnerable. The reality is that it's not talked about by the popular press. But in the last election cycle, Republicans were slated to, and it always is the case, that when there's a re-election of, of a Republican candidate mid-term elections, that there's a serious loss. In point of fact, not only did no incumbent Republican lose the election last cycle, but... Many Democrats lost. I personally know of one district, Minnesota 7, and that was held by a more conservative Democrat. A personal friend of mine, Michelle Fishbaugh, won that district because she's pro-life. And the fact is, is that moderate Democrats were losing in 2020. You know what's strange about it, and I hate to bring this up, we know this is a big topic, but Republicans did extremely well the last election. The only Republican that didn't do well was apparently the president, and you already know this, it's pretty clear certain ballots were handled oddly, and it was just the president lost. All the other Republicans did swimmingly well, and that's unheard of in the midterm. And many Democrats lost. So that raises a question that you're not supposed to ask. And you get in trouble and say, you know, were there some shenanigans in the 2020 election? What's your ballot stuffing? I hate to say this, I'm a Californian. There's been ballot stuffing in California. I've watched it. You can watch the news right now. The news picked up that there are people in Los Angeles right now that have gone around to houses and collected 50, 100 absentee ballots and they had them all in their car. Well, what would mean you go around collecting them? What are you going to do? What's your goal in gathering these ballots? You don't even know the people, but they go to the different apartment houses and they collect them. What are you doing with those ballots? Are they yours? How they, the way our system is set up in California epitomizes what's happened historically. And we already see in this recall election, people say, oh, no, there's no voter abuse. There's no such thing. I'm afraid this happened. Well, I think if anybody ever showed up on my door and said, hey, I'm, I'm here to collect your ballot, I'm going to say, you know, unless you happen to be the precinct captain and you've got some uh, proof of that, uh, no thank you. I can walk it down to the post office 
myself without any problem. Brian Johnston with us. He, of course, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee and host of Life Matters, program you want to be sure to check out. His show comes your way Saturday mornings at 11 a.m. here on KFAX. We've been talking about the, the recent attempts to try and dilute, if not completely defy, the Hyde Amendment. And when we come back, I want to pivot to another topic that many of us thought was long since dead on arrival, and yet apparently some feel as if we're back in 1972 again. So we'll get into our time machine and tell you more about that. So our conversation with Brian Johnston with the National Right to Life Committee continues right after this update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back with Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. By the way, many of the topics that uh, Brian drops by for a visit on, as he has for, my goodness, probably 28 or 29 of the 30 years we've been on the air. Well, Brian now has his own show on the weekends, and you can catch him on... Life Matters, Saturday mornings at 11 a.m., where he gets a chance to go in-depth on many of these topics and more. That's Life Matters, Saturday mornings, 11 a.m., here on KFAX. Brian, before the break, I kind of teased the notion that there's a bit of a time machine going on back in Washington, D.C. I'd like for many of them to get into a time machine, send them back to 1776. Maybe they learned something. But uh, we're not going quite back that far, but it does seem for a few to be 1972 all over again. Tell us what's going on and why, after all of these years, nearly 40, are we still having discussions about the Equal Rights Amendment? It's pretty stunning, isn't it? And many of us, again, I think it's when we first met, Greg, there were some great heroes out there. Phyllis Schlafly was one who led the fight against the ERA. She was both an attorney, but a real a real fighter, and she understood how the women's movement is actually subterfuge. It's entirely subterfuge to push an ideology. It isn't really for women. It's ideology to alter society and to redefine what a woman is. So a woman, according to radical feminism, a true woman shows that she's truly, truly a woman, free, if she's willing to kill her baby. That is just part of a woman's choice, and that makes you a free woman. And that's a very dangerous ideology. But the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, pretends it's, oh, it's just about voting rights. Oh, it's like, this is like Wyoming, and we're granting white. No, no. There's no relationship between the right to vote and the right to kill children. And yet the ERA tends to blend for popular consumers this notion. Well, it's just to let women be able to do new stuff. And written into the ERA is, in fact, inescapably the right to an abortion. The problem is, because it becomes an amendment to the Constitution, see, right now, there is no nothing in the Constitution that says there is an abortion. The Roe v. Wade pretended there was, and as we know, no, it was made up, and that's what my book talks about. Even, even Justice, Justice Blackman himself admitted at the time he made up a lot of his stuff. And that was published in the abortion papers, which were a collection of his personal notes at the time. The ERA would put abortion into the Constitution. Now, you pointed out 72, to amend the Constitution, you have certain time limits. And you just can't say, well, we've passed the time limits, but we're going to extend them. You have to get 
a supermajority of the states and of Congress to vote to pass a new amendment to the Constitution. It's not easy. They're pretending now that there is no limit. They're pretending it's important to understand how the media works and how, how our opponents work. They'll just make stuff up and tell you it's true. I mean, we see this in other issues. We've already seen that. They'll just say it's true. Uh, a man can become a woman because he thinks so. So there. How dare you question me? Well, that's a slightly different issue. But you see how the media work. So the ERA, long ago, has eclipsed any of the true legal qualifications for becoming an amendment. And yet, there are members of the media, and especially of the radical left, saying, no, the ERA, now it is now law. And they want the Congress to proclaim it law, that it has passed. <laughs> and yet, there are several states, in fact, several of the states that had, Wyoming is what? But several states that had passed the ERA later said, you know, we're going to rescind that because there's stuff that you've put in here that you didn't tell us about. So several of the states that were required to pass it and did pass it have since rescinded that. But what the left, and again, I want to say the media is doing, is pretending. And they want to have a vote in Congress, and Congress will just declare... Yes, the ERA has qualified. So shall it be written. So shall it be done. And there are members of the media. And then, of course, the White House will concur. The president will declare the ERA has been certified. And this is what is known politically. You've heard about it, gaslighting, where you just take boldly falsehood and proclaim it as true. And if your opponents disagree, well, they're the ones that are kooky. No, this passed. No, this should be law. So this is zombie law. This is trying to bring back from the dead an issue that is long ago dead, and yet even today, and you saw the press release, right? They're demonstrating in front of the Supreme Court today. And they're demanding that Congress now affirm what was passed before. It was never passed. So this is zombie law. And uh, thank you for, for mentioning Life Matters. We actually talked about this. Some of the experts I interviewed, and we spent a whole half hour at Life Matters. We have a podcast, I believe it was 247, and it goes in a lot of depth, deep, state by state, detail by detail, and also how you pass a constitutional amendment. These people are just lying. But lying has worked for them. And they're serious. They're dead serious. We're going to push our lives. If we believe it and the media believes it, then these other people are just going to have to live with it. And that's how they view lawmaking. It's rather stunning. Yeah, and, you know, the fact that we know uh, there were not 38 states that passed this, um, which is the three-fourths requirement, uh, it's a little problematic to just say, oh, yeah, we think we did it anyway. Yeah. So let's just let's go ahead and start just pretend like it's law and make it up as we go along. And there seems to be a lot of that going on these days. And, uh, you know, what makes that entirely problematic is that we wind up with, uh, you know, people that are just willing to ignore the Constitution, ignore established law and uh, present as if they can just call things aren't as though they are. Uh, that that has a scriptural uh, and faith element to it 
Um, but when you're working in the political realm, uh, you need to deal with what's on the books. And uh, we're still a country that operates by the rule of law, last I checked. And to try to just say, well, even though it didn't pass, we'll just pretend like, yeah, it really did. And, uh, and move forward as, <laughs> as if this is somehow a time warp back to 1972 is uh, simply amazing. And the fact that they're going and protesting in front of the Supreme Court today on that very topic, uh, where it is not grounded in reality whatsoever, is is quite frightening. Not, not only the lack of grounding of reality in terms of the status of um, this amendment, which did not pass, but also the the content of the amendment that if it had it is the proverbial trojan horse we've talked about this many times down through the years so i won't belittle uh beyond to say that uh it's a new day and time in which we live of that there is no doubt brian johnston western regional director with the national right to life committee again life matters goes more in depth saturday mornings at 11 a.m right here on kfax more information by the way on the web at california pro life dot o-r-g that's california pro life dot o-r-g 530 from kfax we're going to talk marriage coming up next but first let's talk traffic and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one. But equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that often and unfortunately marriages are not tied to god's purpose they're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it and there's nothing wrong with that but when god created the first marriage the first couple brought the first two singles together it was to fulfill a divine purpose in fact three purposes uh he said we're going to make man male and female and first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are, um, made in our image. Our image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. 
So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. And in fact, when God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God is, God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people, he wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility Responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to to give them instruction on how they were to to function as men and then he says then I'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed and so God always starts with the man that's why in the garden God said Adam where are you not Adam and Eve where are y'all <laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or a an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, 
he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes. It should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians eleven three, God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man. A man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. Uh, it's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the, the continuation of that passage says, and husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. And of course, if we look at that model, we realize, well, Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior. And the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have joined us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of, of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' lordship really means, don't we? 
Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table, to bear, when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what <laughs> what uh, what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and, it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. He cannot, he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the, in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, one thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Plan. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom. And this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal. And there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth. And it's it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. Well, absolutely. Um, as you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infe- infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take can uh, start off maybe in our minds small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged and uh, you you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before he wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriage and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of, of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize, and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? 
Well, there are there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. Uh, one time, I was uh, a guy ran into my car and uh, and and then ran off and then uh, drove off. So here I, I'm I'm going around with a dent that I didn't create, and every time I look at that dent. Uh, I'm reminded, I'm, I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong. But what that debt was doing, it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings. So I had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was a decision of my will. But what, what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two they're related, but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person, uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's, there's uh, individual, uh, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, one, you hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. Mm. I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, going relationship until you're willing to address the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there? In, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place can, has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the the person who committed the sin needs to repent, and repentance repentance is not just a word; it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit that demonstrates you really mean it. You really meant what you said by things you do that are different that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get to couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand, something small but done regularly because men are torrid for being inconsistent that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and, I, uh, and when I say daily, I mean regularly, because I know you won't hit it every day. But but let her know that God is a part of this relationship, and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour. So 
so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf, anything else. You, she, you, she can zero in on your eyes and she can share. If, you, if she's doing this every week, well, she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated. And then, uh, fourthly, uh, make sure you are dating her. And by dating her, I don't mean asking her, what do you want to do today? I mean, you, you doing things that are fun for both of you. You can't discuss any problems on a date. That's strictly for fun, and you do it on a regular basis given you know, the realities of your life. Then I ask the woman to do one thing. Make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stays full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.